Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Well, Jim, welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand podcast. Packed agenda as always. I know that you want to start with a couple of things about Ireland, one being some latest trade numbers, which contain a few interesting details, as as always. There's a couple of general things about Ireland that I know both of us want to talk about. We've had several pieces of feedback about the things we say about Ireland on the podcast. One very surprising Thing, well, surprising to us anyway, was a commenter suggesting that we should be a bit more positive about Ireland. I don't think that we could be more positive, but let's explore that question. One reviewer on Apple Podcasts, and as an aside, I would say we welcome and would ask for as many reviews on Apple Podcasts uh, or indeed any other podcast platform that people use. It helps us enormously. So good, bad or indifferent comments, please keep them coming. The fact that we are reviewed at all is extremely helpful. But this one commenter on Apple, recently actually, from Australia, it's great that we have listeners so far afield, had a go at us for our, what he called, constant attacks on Sinn Féin. And he said, or she said, I'm not quite sure of the gender of the individual concerned. Please stop having a go. We need to give them a chance. Please get some perspective. I don't know what you think, Jim, but my temptation is to say, no way, we will Uh, continue having a go for as long as we possibly can, because I think that there is a loss of perspective elsewhere 
about Sinn Féin. And what we do, he says modestly, is add some much-needed perspective, particularly when it comes to that other comment that I know you want to explore about Ireland and whether or not we've been positive about it. I want to talk a little bit about the ongoing fallout from Brexit for the UK, which has many and varied aspects. I want to start by saying how incandescently angry really as angry as I've ever been about Brexit, that Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, comments over the weekend was saying that Brexit has not damaged the UK economy. I mean, that's not even wrong. It's not even a lie. It's just so extraordinary. And I want to explore that and explain why I got so angry. There's lots happening geopolitically. We've got the G20 meeting in Indonesia. As we speak, a draft of communique seems to have been agreed, which is harder hitting in terms of the war and its criticisms of the war. Not unrelatedly, we've got the midterm results coming out of the US, and that has, I think, all sorts of implications. As always, I'd like to mention what's going on in interest rates, markets, and the dollar, because I think there are some, there always are, interesting developments going on there. Finally, just economic news is that we've got UK unemployment up, but wages are up. The worst kind of possible combination that you could have wished for. Japan has reported in its most recent quarter a shrinking economy. That was unexpected, down 1.2%. Finland has reported a shrinking economy. So the economic news, as we've been trailing on this pod, is unambiguously uh, disappointing. And from a real economic perspective, growth clearly globally is slowing a lot. And I think that rise in unemployment in the UK, the first one that we've had of any significance for a long time in any major economy, is very interesting. At the same time as we have Amazon joining the list uh, of Twitter, Facebook, Stripe, announcing layoffs. Amazon has announced globally around 10,000 job losses. So uh, the labour market is looking all of a sudden a lot weaker than it was globally. So, Jim, I'll hand it back to you where, um, as I say, you've got some Irish economic data you want to speak about and some more general comments about the hellscape that is living in Ireland at the moment. Today, the Central Statistics Office published the latest merchandise trade data for the first nine months of the year. So that's the exports of physical goods. Um, an incredibly strong story continuing to build there. Overall exports up by over 30%. Uh, within that, the chemical and pharmaceutical sector up by 36.3%, and they account for just under 65% of our total merchandise exports. And la- last podcast, we were talking about the threats to Ireland from what's happening on the global technology front. And I was making the point that the chemical and pharma sector provides an incredibly strong anchor for foreign direct investment and for the overall economy. And that continues to be borne out on the export side. Uh, But the biggest indigenous export sector, food and live animals, accounting for almost 7% of total merchandise exports, up by 23.9%. So the export performance continues to be incredibly strong. Um, I was just looking at the trade relationship with Great Britain, um, excluding Northern Ireland, obviously. Um, Exports there up up to Great Britain, up by 23.2%, and exports to Northern Ireland are up by 36%. Uh, On the import side, there's also interesting stuff happening. Our imports from Great Britain up by 66.7%. But when you delve into the data, it's mainly down to 
mineral fuels and lubricants. So it's it's energy related stuff. Uh, but to summarize, you know, the export performance out of Ireland continues to be incredibly strong. And there are no indications yet that the global headwinds are starting to impact on Ireland's export performance. So that's good news. Um, at a more general level, um, you mentioned feedback I got about um, liking a little bit more positivity on what's happening in Ireland. And I think, you know, we've always given a pretty balanced discussion of what's happening in Ireland. But just to kind of summarize um, my perspective on it at the moment, um, on the positive side of the equation, we have 2.554 million people working in the economy, which is by far the highest level of employment we've ever had in this country. And indeed, the quality of that employment, as demonstrated by the income tax revenues we're collecting, continues to improve. So very, very strong labor market. The unemployment rate in October at 4.4% of the labor force, which is close to the lowest we've ever seen in this country. Um, tax revenues in the first 10 months of the year, 64 billion collected, up by 25.5%. And I think there is no greater indicator of what's happening on the ground in an economy than the taxes that are being generated. And Ireland sure is continuing to generate lots of tax revenues. And I would expect that to continue in November. Um, and on the back of that, on September 27th, in the budget package of 11.3 billion, which was delivered, which was the largest absolute fiscal package we've ever seen in this country, it was funded totally out of budget surplus. In other words, it was funded out of the buy-in tax revenues that have been generated in the economy. Uh, 275,000 people employed by the multinational sector at the end of last year, I would expect that to be up another fifteen to 20,000 this year, notwithstanding or despite the problems that the global tech sector is experiencing at the moment. Um, as I've mentioned, the export performance continues to be incredibly strong on both the physical goods side and on the services side. Ireland is the only native English-speaking country now in the European Union, if you exclude Malta from the equation. Um, and in terms of foreign direct investment, um, I think that's an incredibly positive advantage that Ireland has at the moment, particularly when you see the shit show that is Brexit in the United Kingdom, which I know you want to talk about a little bit later on. Um, we have a pretty well-functioning democracy, you know, despite all of the claims about um, political cronyism um, and so on. The, the International League tables show that Ireland is one of the most best function, one of the best functioning democracies around the world. And the final point I would make on a positive note is that between census 2016 and census 2022, um, the population of the country obviously increased significantly, but within that, we had net inward migration of 190,000. So in a nutshell, there's a lot of positive stuff going on in this country, and there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the future. But then you have to um, recognize what the challenges are. And I think the challenges are pretty obvious to anybody who lives here. Um, housing is a significant crisis. Health is still a significant crisis because our healthcare service definitely is not what it should be. Uh, but then you see headlines in the British media today, Jeremy Hunt warning 
about the NHS being on the brink of collapse. So the problems we have in terms of health delivery are certainly not unique, unique to Ireland. And indeed, the housing challenges we're facing are also not unique to Ireland. Uh, we have climate change targets that we've got to work towards. Um, and there are short-term economic risks, such as the global tech problems that we spoke about last week. And just to reiterate the point there, um, the tech sector here, or ICT to be more precise, employed 106,000 people at the end of last year and contributed over $3 billion to tax revenues. So some of that is clearly coming Jim, can I stop you there? I, now. When you say $3 billion, I assume you're excluding corporation tax from that figure. No, that is corporation tax. Well, how do you get to $3 billion then? How do you mean, Chris? You just said the ICT sector contributed $3 billion to taxation. To corporation tax. Yeah, so corporation tax is about $23 billion this year. I'm getting confused. I'm just trying to Co- tease. No, in, in, the, in the first 10 months of this year, um, corporation tax was $16 billion, and around $3 billion of that, as far as I can estimate, came from the ICT sector. Okay. I, I'm just a little confused as to where the numbers come from. But go, carry on. Sorry. Um, I apologize for interrupting you. Yeah, mo- mo- most of the rest of the corporation tax for, and, and where the real tax revenues generated is in the chemical and pharma side. No, oh, they okay. see, re- revealing my ignorance there. No, no, no not, not at all. I mean, th- this is my estimate, okay? Um, it may not be precise, but it's, it's, I think it's in the ballpark. And, and, and there some of that employment in ICT and some of those tax revenues are going to come under some pressure, but we're not going to lose them all. I would expect the chemical and pharma side to continue to perform strongly. So in a nutshell... You know, I, I hope I've given a balanced description of where Ireland is at the moment. There is a lot of positive stuff going on. And I think more than any other EU country at the moment, we are going into this EU recession in a somewhat better sh- state of health than many other countries. I hope that that addresses the topic in a fair and balanced way. In relation to the review on Apple that you mentioned there in relation to somebody in Australia. I, I think it's incumbent on us to, you know, critically analyse every political party. Um, and, and I think we'll be doing a lot more of that in the run-up to the next general election. Uh, but within that, I mean, it, we, we've got to focus in on Sinn Féin because Sinn Féin coming into government would represent a significant change of direction for economic policy making in Ireland. And I think we are entitled to give our true and honest views on that. And I would also say it's very easy for somebody living in Australia or the United States or wherever um, to suggest that we should give Sinn Féin a chance. If they really want to live in a country run by Sinn Féin, well, why not come back here then and experience it and see if you like it or not? Maybe you will. Or maybe you won't, but it's it's very easy to throw brickbats from outside the country. Shall we move the discussion on and get on to perhaps my favourite topic of, of recent years? And I promise not to go on too much about it. But Brexit is always throwing up news items worthy of commentary. Um, and I try to avoid most of them these days because I think most people have made their minds up about whether or not Brexit was a good idea and about what its effects have been. I wrote a piece for our Substack site a quite long piece that has been read, thankfully, by quite a few people about the latest manifestations of Brexit. And I wrote it in a particular way. And I was focusing very much on the use of language that Brexit has given rise to. One of Brexit's many legacies, there are economic, social and political legacies of Brexit. 
and related to all three has been the way in which language, the use of language has changed in the UK. For, for as long as there have been human beings speaking, for as long as there have been politicians, we have got used to political lying. There's nothing new about political lies. What is new about what Brexit has given rise to, I think, is a new level of abuse of the language, a new level of lying to the point where it has become normalized. It used to be the case that lying was expected. Lying was always something that was, as I say, present in the public square. But one of the things that happened, if you got caught out with a big porky in the past, you often had to resign and or apologize. These days in the UK, nobody even notices if you're telling lies. And I think in, in some quarters, it's now expected that you, in order to be a successful politician, you have to tell lies. And indeed, in some parts of the British media in particular, and the Looney Tune wing of the Tory party, lying is applauded. And I think all of this is new. And it's perfectly okay to come out with absolute nonsense. The most recent example of which, and I could give you many, many examples of great lies, the Brexit lies that were told uh, in the run-up to that referendum, none of which have, uh, um, all of which have been proven to be lies. But the latest, the, the one that really got my goat over the weekend was the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer saying, I do not accept that Brexit has harmed the UK. There is just so much abundant evidence. Every single decent economist out there accepts that the economy has been harmed. The only debate amongst economists, and there is always room for debate, is over the extent of the harm. We do not anymore in our profession debate whether or not it has been harmful. The best example of this that I could point people to would be the work of somebody called Professor Jonathan Portis of London University. He's writing, for example, this week in the New Statesman. He writes in lots of different places in his own capacity, in his own blog, and his own tweets. And he describes Brexit as something that has caused not a car crash for the UK economy, but a slow puncture. And I think that's a reasonable perspective. We, you can take issue with it. What does a slow puncture mean? It just means that there has been damage. I could point you to the work of lots of economists that economists that come to similar and different conclusions. Some people think it's going been worse than that. But to say that it hasn't had any kind of negative impact, as the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer did, is Chris, just non nonsense. Yeah, can I, can I just uh, re refer to something I came across yesterday from an economist I knew many years ago in the city of London who worked in Solomon Brothers at the time um, called Michael Saunders, um, and he stepped down from the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee recently. And, you know, he came out with pretty strong stuff in the last 24 hours. Um, on Thursday of this week, Jeremy Hunt is due to deliver an austerity budget. And Michael Saunders said that Brexit is the ultimate reason why the UK now faces a fresh round of austerity. He said that the UK economy has been permanently damaged by Brexit that it has reduced the economy's potential output significantly and eroded business investment. Um, and he said that the need for spending cuts and tax rises would not be there if it were not for the impact that Brexit is having on the economy. And separately, yesterday, we saw that London has just lost its status as the biggest hub for stock market listings in Europe. In US dollar terms, Paris has now overtaken London in terms of market capitalization. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To be balanced about that last statistic, a lot of it's got to do with the exchange rate, and you can argue about whether yes. or not you should be using things like purchasing power parity rather than the actual exchange rate. Those are very esoteric, geeky arguments. But the fact is, just before the referendum, the UK stock market was one and a half trillion. That's 1.5 followed by 12 zeros. One and a half trillion dollars bigger than the French stock market. Yeah, It is now smaller than the French stock and market. And the point, of course, also is, Chris, I totally agree with you in terms of purchasing power parity or how you measure these things in dollar terms. But what is the main reason that why sterling has depreciated by so much bingo you hit the nail on the head brexit. sterling is down because of brexit yeah absolutely other kinds of people that talk about the effects of brexit other than michael saunders ex-member of the monetary policy committee i could refer you to a guy called professor david blancheflower uh, professor at an ivy league university in the united states who also used to be on the monetary policy committee you should see what he has to say about the consequences of brexit you should see what the institute for fiscal studies has to say about the economic consequences for brexit you should see what the office for budget responsibility the independent government watchdog uh, has to say about brexit it says that it's going to cause a four percent and it's on the way to causing a four percent hit to gdp so the economics of this to my mind are settled. And it's disgraceful, absolutely shocking that Hunt could make those sorts of claims. It tells you, again, that Brexit has become a cult, what I call a cargo cult, actually, in terms of British politics, British society. And to the extent uh, that anybody says anything about Brexit, it reveals which side, whether or not you're part of this cult or not. Because if you're a member of a cult, I think one of the defining characteristics of cult membership is that you are utterly immune to evidence. No amount of data, facts, evidence, just stuff that smacks you in the face called reality ever causes you to change your mind. If you're one of these religious cult nuts that talk about the end of the world happening tomorrow, and then it doesn't happen as it always doesn't, um, you always still end up believing that the end of the world is nigh, and so on, and so on. The use of language that I go on about in my Substack article, again, as I say, there are so many different examples. I'll give you one very recent example from today, uh, an interview, a televised interview with Jacob Rees-Mogg. And this is where the use of language, not only is it conventional, normalized lying, it's where it's become really, really sinister. He referred to the European Union as the European Empire. Now, if that isn't a dog whistle of the most neo-fascistic kind, I don't know what is. It's an extraordinary, sly, devious insertion into the language of something very new. And it tells you about how these people are just 
full of hatred. It's not just that they criticize on pragmatic policy, outcome-driven, data-driven grounds for what the European does and does not do. And believe me, I in the past have been one of the European Union's greatest critics in terms of some of the things that it does, some of the things that it hasn't done, the way it treated Greece during the European, the Eurozone financial crisis, and a long list of things that I think the European Union gets wrong. But to call it an empire, the idea that it is this imperialistic, militaristic entity is, is the most extraordinary abuse of language. And they do it all the time. They have all sorts of dog whistles. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, referring to the immigrant issue, immigration issue in the UK as an invasion. Another classic dog whistle of a neo-fascistic kind. Their use of language is extraordinary and it's new, and it is most sinister. And that contributes to me arriving at the same conclusion that somebody called Adrian Wooldridge reached again in the last couple of days. Adrian Wooldridge used to be the editor of The Economist, a very serious top-ranking journalist. He is now the top UK political commentator for Bloomberg News. And if anybody wants the, one of the best sources of news analysis and opinion out there, I would thoroughly recommend Bloomberg, actually. Well worth the annual fee. It, it's, for, mo for the most part, a fee-driven service. But he wrote a long-form piece asking the question, in terms of the effects of the populist plague, which country right now, today, is worse off in terms of how populism is essentially corrupting the, the country. And he was comparing and contrasting the United States and the United Kingdom. And in the wake of the, shall we call it a nod to democratic values, the, the rejection of the Donald that the midterms are being described as, and comparing it to the Brexit legacies of which I have just spoken in Britain, he concludes, and I agree, that the UK, believe it or not, is in a worse populist position than is the United States. Now, you and I have actually on this podcast asked the question about whether the US is in the middle of some kind of civil war. That's how bad we think the US is. We've both been there recently, and we understand just how bad it is, notwithstanding the fact that there does, have, does seem to have been some resurgence of democratic values as a result of the midterm elections and the uh, semi-rejection of Donald Trump. We shall see. He's due to announce today whether or not he's running. But to conclude that the UK is in a worse position than the United States from that populist plague perspective, I apologize for the alliteration, that's quite a conclusion, Jim. And unfortunately, I'm sitting here in the UK wishing it weren't so. But I have to say that I agree with Waldridge. I think, I think that we are in an extraordinarily bad situation. And that gives rise to all sorts of things, some of which I've mentioned. But one that is upcoming is that we have a budget this week or rather we call it the autumn statement. And in it, we are, as you have said just now, going to get tax increases and spending cuts on the basis of, and here I would urge any, um, I know we have a few uh, Leaving Cert economics teachers listening to the podcast and economics students as well. Think about the economics of this. This is nonsense, rubbish, crap economics. There is no economic textbook, theory, article, learned uh, piece written that says they have to do what they have to do now. All proper economists are saying it's rubbish, it's nonsense, it's pure bullshit. It really is. And that stems from the targets that they've set themselves, which is, oh, we have this high debt level, we need to get it down as a proportion of GDP. There is nothing in economics that tells you that you have to do that, particularly from the position that the UK is starting from, 
which is not particularly debt-ridden when it comes to comparing it to other economies. It's in the midpoint of the league tables of debt-ridden, using that expression, countries. There is no other country with similar levels of debt that thinks it has to do austerity 2.0. There is no other country with similar levels of debt that thinks it has to slash public spending and raise taxes. The right thing to do from an economics perspective is nothing. Just let the automatic stabilizers uh, work and then think about your fiscal position when you're coming out of the recession. To be tightening fiscal policy at a time when monetary policy is tightening and your economy in recession is just loopy, looney tune economics. And it makes me very angry that these people talk about it being inevitable. There's nothing else we can do, Gov. It's just what we got to do. It's politically driven, ideologically driven, absolute crap. And it needs to be called out as such. The UK is in a very bad economic, political and social space. I'll shut up there, Jim. No, the, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has said in the last 24 hours that a budget of this nature is necessary to keep the markets appeased. And, bullshit. Um, absolute bullshit. I know it's absolute bullshit, but but if, if, you, if you think about what happened quasi-quartang, um, massive fiscal stimulus, the markets absolutely freaked out. Can I stop you there, Jim? The reason for that was... Sorry, I know. Can you let me explain, Chris? I know exactly the reason. It forced his resignation, uh, or sorry, his sacking and eventually the resignation of the Prime Minister. What, what I was going to say was that Hunt is taking that market reaction as the imprimatur for what he's going to do this week, whereas the reality is, as I understand it, why the markets reacted so badly was because it was a massive fiscal stimulus package that was being funded totally out of borrowing um, and that it was also flying in the case, in the face of what the Bank of England was doing on the monetary fo- policy front. So I my conclusion would be that Hunt is wrong by saying that he has got to do this because of the markets. Um, I would agree totally with what you said there that to me, the best approach at this juncture is to do nothing to allow the automatic stabilizers work through the system and ensure that at least the economy remains above water to the greatest extent possible. What this fiscal package is going to do on Thursday is push an economy already into trouble, into much more serious trouble. And then the negative automatic stabilizers really start to kick in big time in terms of tax revenue start to collapse, spending starts to increase dramatically, and you end up in a worse fiscal hold because austerity does not work. The reason, in addition to what you've just said, which is all 100% accurate, is that the market reaction to those unfunded tax cuts was made worse by a peculiar technical aspect of the most boring bit of the financial markets in the world, which is the UK pension fund industry. And it had nothing to do with the fiscal stance. It had nothing to do with how the markets are going to react in the future. It had nothing to do with the market saying to the Chancellor, you must cut debt, you must do austerity too. It was to do with the technical funding position of the pension fund industry in the UK, which had done something spectacularly stupid itself. And that had to be dealt with. That's being dealt with and is being dealt with. And there are no market implications for what the Chancellor has to do this week. The fact that they're saying that it does is a lie. And it's the worst kind of lie because some lies don't matter. If I say to you today, Jim, the moon is made of green cheese. The moon landings were faked. Nobody gets hurt by those lies, do they? We... Some people might get offended. Some people might think that I'm insane. Some people might get angry by those lies, but nobody actually gets hurt. The kind of lies that are being told in the UK at the moment cost lives. 
it is not unconnected with the fact that the NHS is falling over. It's not unconnected with the fact that a lot of these fights over, over the economy, the shrinking the economy, the fact that tax revenues have gone missing, costs lives, not least because of the NHS, but in so many different ways, rising unemployment. Unemployment costs lives. So these lies that they're telling, unlike some lies, really, really matter. And it costs lives. I think that they are killing people as a result of their lies. And that's why I'm so angry. Okay, take your point. Um, Looking across the Atlantic at the United States, uh, I see Kerry Lake lost or Carrie Lake lost the governorship of Arizona in the last few hours. And she was the lady who was described. I heard her described as Donald Trump in high heels. She mocked Paul Pelosi after he was brutally assaulted in his house there a few weeks back. So it is good to see that actually there are consequences for that sort of behavior. And I saw some voting results out of a university in Arkansas where I think 96% of students voted for the Democrat, a total and utter rejection of Carrie Lake. So that would give you some sense of hope about the United States that actually young people are now starting to stand up and react to the crap that we've seen evolve there over the last seven or eight years under the guise of Donald Trump. Don't know what Trump is going to say today, but you you really hope that we've seen the end of that evil guy. But I I, I suppose in, in looking forward, if that is the case, the next thing the states will have to deal with is Ron DeSantis in Florida, because presumably... Um, and one can ever presume anything in the world of politics, but presumably he will be the Republican candidate for the presidential election in November 24. I suppose the point, Jim, and it's the question mm. I'd ask you is as somebody that studies the states closely, and I know you're a regular visitor there. If Donald Trump, whether or not he runs or not, if he loses, if he doesn't become the next president, do you think it's the end of Trumpism? No. And if it isn't the end of Trumpism, what do you think Trumpism under, say, DeSantis or Cruz or some other candidate would actually mean for the United States? Uh, I mean, th- there were aspects of what Trump said that, you know, you, you could agree with. They were reasonably sensible. But the whole uh, narrative around everything he did and said was just so destructive, was so evil. Um, and, and some of it was just blatantly wrong, particularly the whole attitude to immigration, because without inward migration, the U.S. economy would not function. And that the Mexican wall was a case in point. I mean, without Mexican workers, we would not they would not have a horticulture industry in California, which is a very important industry. Likewise, in the hospitality sector, Trump was a dangerous fascist. I'd be personally delighted to see him finally exiting completely from the landscape. But that sort of Trumpian thing ain't going to disappear because we've discussed the reasons that gave rise to people like Trump several times in this podcast. Those reasons have not gone away. Uh, we're, We're likely to see just a different complexion of Trumpism under Ron DeSantis. And some people who observe DeSantis closely would argue that, um, in some ways, he's actually worse than Donald Trump. Blimey, is such a thing possible? Yeah, well, ab- absolutely. You see, if, if 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 Trump had shut his mouth and just got on with it, perhaps it wouldn't have looked as toxic. Mm. Uh, but it, it was the whole narrative that he kept coming out with, the bile he was throwing out, you know, picking rows with the European Union. It was the most horrible 
four year period as an outside observer of what is going on in the United States. And I know I don't have to live with it, but as an outside observer looking in, um, it, it looked very depressing to me. I mean, the idea that the, the, fo- the next Trump, if you like, or the follower of, of Donald Trump could be w- even worse is scary. But that has shades of how we're warned about the people who think that if Vladimir Putin shuffles off the political stage at some point in the future, that things will get better. And we're warned by people, not least in the intelligence community, that the kind of people coming up behind Putin are actually even worse. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a scary prospect. All right, Jim, I think that uh, I'll leave my market discussion of the Fed interest rates on the dollar until next time. Always leave leave something on the table. So good to talk. Speak to you next time. Yeah, super, Chris. Talk. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.